Hey everyone, once again, it's time for... What are we doing again? Ask, all right, scrap that. It's time again, once for all, everybody. Hey everyone, it's time once again for Ask, where does Leviticus uh, condone slavery? A big question, and a couple of other really good ones as well. So stay tuned as we get to it. Hey everyone, once again, this is Pastor Jamie. We're here at Quarterstone Church where we answer questions, you ask them, right, by going on, that's why the name of the, the uh, program, you go to, uh, to cornerstonebv.org and click uh, media page drop down, you can hit ask and put in your question. You don't have to leave your name, can if you want, but you certainly don't have to. And uh, remember, this program is derived completely by your questions, so we need them. Bible, faith, life, whatever. By the way, looking pretty sharp, huh, Steve, in the new, uh, yeah, the new Cornerstone uh, shirt. You can order yours, uh, get some merch here in the comments, or uh, this is specially ordered. You can get one of these too, so really comfortable. This will be my go-to pretty much all the time now. All right, really, uh, I think, um, difficult question came in from the website. So can you please explain Leviticus 25, 44 to 46, uh, of how we can explain to people who accuse God of being okay with slaves as property or slave trafficking. Um, so again, this is, comes from Leviticus chapter 25. And um, let me back it up a little bit and just give you a few verses starting in 39. And then I'll give you the verses that the question included and try to uh, do my best to, to answer. So backing up to verse 39, it says, if your brother becomes poor, beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. All right, so right there he's talking about an Israelite. So of course God's talking to Israel and Leviticus, his people, his chosen people. Um, and so it, it, if it's an economic system, right? So if you <laughs> have no more resources and you have a huge debt, you could actually sell yourself into slavery to pay it off. There's no bankruptcy, right? And um, what he's saying is, okay, that's fine, but who, when you have a slave that did that, you have to treat them not as a slave-master relationship, but still as a brother. They work off that debt, but you treat them with respect. And the ultimate context of Leviticus 25 is the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, um, things land that was once sold out of a family would go back, and that included pro other property and including slaves. So the price of a slave was based on when the year of Jubilee. If the year of Jubilee is next year, well, price of slaves can be pretty low because you're only gonna have them for a year because they get to be released and freed in the year of Jubilee. That's the overall context, which is really important. However, let me just give you the, the rest of it, which is where the difficulty comes in. As for your male and female slaves whom you have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. So not Israel, right? You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. Okay, again, gets back to the whole point of you can't rule ruthlessly over your, your brothers. So is God saying it's okay to rule ruthlessly over foreigners, right? So that's really where the question comes in, into. And quite frankly, it's really impossible to completely answer because the Bible never uh, never reject slavery. It, it, it doesn't exactly condone it, but it, it, it definitely out, lays out both in the Old and New Testament how it should be done. Um, it, so it assumes a natural practice, slavery, in the ancient Near East, in, in, in the ancient world, right? It was a, an assumed practice. Uh, and we'll get back to the end of why the Bible doesn't necessarily go right at reforming it. We'll get, we'll get back to that. 
Um, but again, remember, slavery in their world was very different from what we see today, even right now in the world, not in America, thankfully. Um, but most slavery is based upon racial uh, lines, right? You are an inferior race. So therefore, you, we, I have a right to make you my slave. So people are, are, are stolen out of their homes and families and sold off and then people buy them, treat them with absolutely no respect or rights, okay? That was not how slavery was. Now, I'm not saying slavery was a good system, but it was very different, it was economic. You had doctors and lawyers sometimes that would be slaves, right? Um, based on their economic position, some even willingly became slaves because their master took care of them. And, and it could be a harsh world if you didn't have the right tools uh, around you and, and sometimes it was just better, I'll just be a slave. Uh, so it was very different, not saying right or wrong, but just keep that in mind um, that when we read that in Leviticus or in the New Testament, it's not talking about like for us, the African slave trade, for instance, right? Um, so, also, remember what we say here, context is everything. That's why I spent time to talk about the context of Leviticus 25 is the year of Jubilee. If you really look at the whole picture, God's laying out all, you know, properties returned to the year of Jubilee. Um, and, and, and really, it's a, it's a, uh, a, God, it's a Bible passage that's really about God's equity and justice, right? That he, he doesn't want people taken advantage of. He doesn't want people to be poor forever or to be the poor just get poorer and the rich get richer. So the year of Jubilee was about sort of resetting that and reminding uh, his people that you are not just commodities, but brothers and sisters. Um, and, and, and so that's the, the context. And, and, and so we, we have to assume, though foreigners were different than Israelites, there was always a distinction made in the Old Testament that, that God would never want them treated badly or poorly, that it's just not God's character. Um, and, and he would always want his character reflected in how his people treat others, including foreign slaves. The real context here is they don't get to be, um, they don't go back uh, to where they came from during the year of Jubilee because they're not part of God's people. They're not part of Israel. So there's a distinction there. I don't think it's how you treat them as much as they get to stay uh, as they are not get to, but they stay as slaves and there's no application of the year of Jubilee for them. Hopefully that's not too confusing. Now, um, more to your question about, all right, slavery and trafficking. Um, this was an economic thing. This was not uh, stealing, right? Like Exodus 21, 16, God says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So, so clearly there's a distinction here that, that slavery was a, a willing indebtedness that someone had to go into because they were, again, it's an economic situation. It wasn't, they were taken like in the African slave trade. That God clearly said was heinous. In fact, it was a death penalty if you participate in anything like that. Um, okay, so lastly, the Bible's ultimately not going after social reform. It doesn't mean it doesn't speak on social issues. Of course it does, but that's not the main intent of Scripture. Scripture um, is about uh, revealing God's character of holiness uh, and love to us and revealing our sinfulness and need for a Savior, and it points to who that Savior is, Jesus Christ, right? So we can have ultimate redemption in Christ. And so in that, the Bible approaches these social issues from the inside out, not from the outside in. Like, 
you know, when, when you see government trying to deal with issues, they deal with symptoms. How do we make it more equitable or fair? And so we put laws and restrictions. Real, but where the Bible does is it speaks to your heart. And that sometimes is a, more, is a slower change, but ultimately it brings much better and fruitful change and more permanent change because it's from the inside out, not from the outside in. So again, Rome, uh, Paul talked about slavery uh, because they were in the Roman civilization where slavery was a huge thing. There was more slaves than, not, than free people, right? And so you weren't gonna change that by Paul getting up on a soapbox and preaching. However, uh, you know, it, it took about three centuries, but the Roman slave, slavery ended mainly because more people became Christians than not by the, uh, you know, third century of Christianity. And so it, it changed. People saw the worthiness of human life and didn't want slavery of any kind. It just takes time. Again, so the Bible, God uses his word to change us from the inside out rather than the outside in. All right, great question. Again, a tough one to answer, but I really liked it. Um, just a couple other quick ones we have time for. Uh, what is the difference between a Bible translation and a Bible version? And why is the English Standard Version the Bible choice of Cornerstone Church? Okay, so I don't think there's a difference between the terms translation and, and version. Um, I think we use those sort of interchangeably. I mean, I could be wrong there, but I don't, I don't know of any. Um, I think the best uh, word to use is translation. And so that's the key here, right? Whenever you're looking at an English translation, or about the different language as well, but we'll, we're mainly English speakers you know, here. So um, when, when you're looking at different translations, there's a whole array of them. Um, you, you gotta understand they're all translations, meaning the original language was Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New, there was some Aramaic in there too, but those are the two main uh, ancient languages. And so a translation into English is, to, is a committee of scholars who with their best attempt and an understanding and a grasp on what that author intended in the Greek or in the Hebrew and in keeping that in translation, that intent into the English. So it's not just a simple word for word, it's trying to say, all right, what did that author mean and now what does it say in English? And so you want a trusted translation that you know that committee did their very best to keep it at the original author's intent and didn't skew it all with their own opinions and, and slants, because you can do that. You've heard lost in translation, right? Well, a lot of uh, translations do that. Um, now, I think there's several good ones. They all have weaknesses and holes, including the one we use ESV. There's no perfect one. Those who claim the King James Version is perfect is ridiculous. It is not. Um, and and so, so we have to understand that. It doesn't mean we don't read it in English, but you know, use tools like interlinear Bible, where you can actually go to the original language and see what that word means, or um, maybe use a Bible that has parallel translations. It'll sometimes have, you know, King James, ESV, ESV, um, NASB, NIV, whatever, right? And, and you can kind of see the differences and compare and contrast them, right? And you see a major difference, investigate why, right? So uh, I would recommend all of that. I would also recommend that you do not use a paraphrase like the New Living, or, or not the, the Living Bible, or specifically the Message uh, as your Bible. I'm not saying they don't have a worth as a, as a companion to your Bible, but they are not translations. They're taking an English translation and trying to paraphrase it in, as in a kind of a modern way so people can understand it. So be careful of paraphrases. Why do we use the ESV? We just think the ESV is, is one of the best, soundest um, translations. It actually comes mainly from the night that was 
Crossway published ESV in 2001, uh, but they really took the scholarly work of the RSV, which came out in 1971, but they corrected some, some with probably some liberal errors there uh, in ESV. And all of it really comes from the same documentary evidence that the committee that translated the um, King James ver version used, except more have been found, Dead Sea Scrolls, etc. And so actually it's better scholarship than the King James Version, but used mainly the same documents. So I know that's a lot, but that's why we use the ESV, but it's not perfect and none of them are. All right? All right. So uh, lastly, um, this comes from one of our small groups. They call themselves the 35th Mass Unit. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, I guess because there's a lot of injuries there. It, we know, and they're old because you'd have to know what MASH even was as a show. Uh, we know from the Bible that Nicodemus knew of Jesus, but did he know Jesus? In other words, did he eventually become a Christian? Okay, so Nicodemus in the Bible, mainly found in the Gospel of John, right? Um, I think probably that's the only place. I know Joseph of Arimathea is in other places, but anyway, I could check that. Um, but here's the thing, we don't really know for sure if Nicodemus uh, is or became a Christian. It doesn't outright say it. Uh, what we do know is he was a ruling member of the, of the of San, he was called the, the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, but he was very high in the Jerusalem Jewish leaders um, that they looked to for, to make ruling decisions um, and check teachers like Jesus. Uh, we know that at one point he defended Jesus, not necessarily that he's you know, God's son or anything like that, but just said, hey, we shouldn't kill him without evidence to the other Sanhedrin um, and, and members. And he also went to Jesus at night. You can read about that in John chapter 3, where he, he genuinely seemed to sought out Jesus. Like, what does it mean to be born again? And the last place we see him is, of course, burying him with Joseph of Arimathea um, after Jesus died. And so Nicodemus put a lot on the line financially and probably socially to do that. Um, we do know Joseph of Arimathea is called a secret disciple of the Lord, so he was a Christian. So I think there's good reason to think that, that um, Nicodemus was in the same category. Uh, he also was looked at ma mainly favorably in the Gospel of John. So I think you put all those pieces together, I would guess he was a Christian, but we can't know for sure. That's all I can do. All right, you'll have to wait till heaven. All right, long questions, good questions, keep them coming. CornerstoneBV.org. You, can, you know what to do, and uh, hopefully we'll see you this weekend at one of our uh, services and get some cool outfits from, uh, from the Cornerstone store. All right, see ya.